welcome to the podcast. We've got fresh content from some of the brightest minds in the Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto space. With feeds on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that make it so incredibly easy to keep to the pulse of what's happening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and even hit the share button to send to someone you know who would love to know about this totally free podcast. Huge thanks to our main sponsor, UnoCoin, who are not only India's leading crypto assets blockchain company, but also the reason why this podcast is available to you completely free of charge. With that said, let's jump into one of the Blockchain Impact Conference talks that took place in Toronto, Canada on December 8th, 2017. Enjoy. So the title of the uh, panel is how blockchain technology is going to impact regulation, but another title will be this is the elephant in the room because it can take just one wrong decision by Security Exchange Commission and we're going to have a shock worse than the 2008 collapse of the whole ecosystem. Uh, my first question is very, very Canadian, uh, in the sense that Canada has a very evolved ecosystem on the blockchain, however, it doesn't have an equally evolved ecosystem when it comes to regulation. Uh, you go to places like Switzerland, or you go to tax havens like Singapore, or even Gibraltar or other places, and they're way, way more organized when it comes to regulation. As a result, there's a huge outflow of money and opportunity lost to those places. So where do you foresee Canada enforcing regulation? And in what sense? It will be securities, it will be commodities. In what sense the cryptocurrency will be regulated in this country? So money doesn't outflow. Absolutely. I was looking at you already. Probably the main driver of people moving their companies to places like Singapore is actually tax, not a lack of regulation that supports blockchain. And this is sort of an unfair answer to the question, but I would question the premise of it, which is, do we need it, right? Is that really holding people back? I, I'm not sure I've talked to anyone who said that uh, we need more regulations and that will make things better, other than perhaps more definition on the security side. I think one of the changes that will happen is we'll end up with better definition of where the margins are between securities law and other areas. Because one of the things that we're seeing in the blockchain space now is we've moved from payments into other more creative options. CryptoKitties aside, people are trying to come up with other kinds of models and new ways of doing things. Tokenizing assets, coming up with types of securities, sort of tokens that are on blockchains. And these things are challenging securities regulators to figure out what their response is and to give people a good answer of where do other industries end and securities begin? And this is being challenged by hundreds of different entrepreneurs and groups in Canada. So I think one outcome is we'll end up with better defined rules in Canada. I would just add uh, that in addition to like you know trying to fit this new technology into the existing playbook. Uh, the, you know, the regulators need to look at how this technology can actually be incorporated into what is our playbook. Um, oftentimes, you know, this is going to, if we look at, for example, corporate registries, if we think about what ICOs are doing, um, you know, 
I've registered for corporations in the past and we've had to sign, send papers around everywhere and then you issue shares and options and like, yeah, it's actually all in paper. Blockchain is gonna provide us this technology to go paper free, go super secure, go super efficient, which will lead to more uh, you know, effective, pros prosperous economy. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity to look at how this technology can be utilized by government regulators as well. I'm gonna go one level up and say, um, yes, I, I agree with, with what both of you have said, but I, I think a lot of times regulators forget and we forget what the purpose of regulation is. So what, what I love about working in this industry is that it allows us to rethink systems in a meaningful way. We actually have an opportunity to use technology to reach the goals of regulation without all of the encumbering regulatory burden that comes along with it. And so I think, I think my advice to regulators is take a second, step back, think about what, what goals are you trying to accomplish, and then actually look at our technology and say, hey, can we do this in a more efficient and effective way? Yeah, so my background is that I used to be a regulator. <laughs> so I used to be a prosecutor at the Ontario Securities Commission. So I'm, I'm somewhat torn on this debate because we as a firm represent everyone from your 25-year-old developer from Waterloo schedule on banks um, and exchanges, et cetera, et cetera, whether they be cryptocurrency exchanges to other types of exchanges. And so it's a very difficult question. I mean, where is it the case that a technology comes around that ends up challenging our most primordial concepts at this fundamental level? And I totally understand uh, the developer and those of the crypto community who want change to occur and regulation to be, to be clear at a very quick pace. Uh, that being said, I mean, innovation is nothing new in the capital markets, and in fact, we assess the health of our capital markets as to how much innovation we see, whether it's complex financial products, whether it's high-frequency trading, whether it's robo-advisors or what have you. Our securities markets are supposed to be able to move, and our canonical principles in securities laws should be able to withstand whatever creativity there is. That being said, I mean, I do take your point about Singapore and Swiss FINMA. Can there be more done by our regulators to provide that clarity? Because, I mean, we come at this and we have over 60 to 70 ICOs where we're acting as counsel. Uh, we act for a whole host of different parties and the, the, the regulation is not clear. The threshold as to whether something is a security or not a security, the question as to if something is a security, how to deal with it on resale, so many questions are up in the air, and we're almost at an impasse in the sense that the governments and many others want to promote innovation. They want to be forward. They want to be part of the international race. They do not want to stifle innovation. But at the other hand is also their, the other aspect of their mandate, which is to protect investors and to ensure that claims like we, what we've been seeing in Tezos or what we've been seeing in Plexcoin or what we've been seeing in Recoin uh, matters where investors or purported investors have been raising serious concerns that that doesn't come back and you know, the regulators have egg on their face. Um, so without sort of belaboring the point, I mean, when we talk about Canada, I mean, I think that Canada's name is somewhat tarnished, uh, whether it's right or wrongful, I'm not sure, but we have seen the regulators try to be proactive in certain respects compared to other regulators. So in Canada, for example, the CSA, the Canadian Securities Administrators, came out with a staff notice on 
cryptocurrency offerings, which tried to provide proactive guidance um, on not only just cryptocurrencies, uh, sorry, token sales, but also there's a, a section there on cryptocurrency exchanges, there's a section there on uh, crypto investment funds as well. So they did try to get ahead by giving some guidance in that space, which is far more instructive than what we've seen in the States. I mean, what have we in truth seen come out of the SEC other than regulation by enforcement? And I don't mean to say that by any way as an indictment on the SEC, but the only proactive guidance that we've been receiving is through the Dow decision, through the investigative report, or through enforcement action in, in, in Recoin, or through uh, uh, an investor warning on celebrities endorsing ICOs, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I want to interject here for yeah. a second because even before in the panel before, in many of the talks we heard today, we think about these cryptocurrencies, 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 but uh, the blockchain goes beyond the concept of cryptocurrency. Uh, the blockchain, especially the way that was introduced by Ethereum, that the was a revolution. It speaks about privacy, it speaks about security, it speaks about digitization of assets, of identity, Everybody wants my data. Google, Facebook, Amazon, all of those guys love my data and your data. And the blockchain provides an opportunity to give security and privacy to the people that have been compromised since 9-11, essentially, right? So the regulation doesn't involve only uh, how the cryptocurrencies would be regulated, but how this concept of privacy and security would be regulated and protected and not compromised has been happening for the last 16 years. So what do you feel is the direction towards this? So forget about coins, forget about tokens, think about privacy, think about security. I think it's going in the direction of self-sovereign data and taking control over all of our data. One of the sponsors here is Data Wallet. This is what their entire mission is, is about, is how do we allow, as an individual, I want to take back control of my data and then be able to monetize it directly to these things. Right now, like the data, our, our data we don't have control over it lies out there. This is something Don Tapscott likes to talk about, the, the notion of the personal black box. Like imagine you have the keys to all your data and you can also tie them together and then you can apply AI and deep learning and like, you know, selectively share uh, de-identified data there to yield better services to you as an individual, which will lead to better discovery, better purchases, and more prosperity. Uh, so I think we're going to reclaim our data, and you know the the, the circle movie uh, dystopia is not going to happen. Yeah, no, I'm going to agree with Carl. I, I think the biggest problem for regulators, and I speak to them all the time, and I've been regulated in 35 jurisdictions, just so you know, I've never done anything wrong. Um, the biggest issue is that they're not educated. We're, we're, we're into a new paradigm shift and regulators have got no clue how to do it with this. And I've been telling, you know, and I, you know, I'm lucky in Australia because I've got one regulator, one government um, that I know. In Canada you've got lots of regulators, in Europe you've got thousands, in the US you've got more. So for me it's been a much easier journey because it's easier to have a conversation with three people and make a decision than 397. Um, but regulators have got one thing, well, two things worry about. One is, yeah, people's privacy and their control over what happens to the consumer protection. And that's, regulators are not bad people, it's what they do. And the other thing is, how do they stop consumers being ripped off? So, 
the, in the technology and the innovation that we've seen in the last couple of years has gone much faster than any regulation that I've ever seen in any financial market or any product for the last 450 years. So we, we've come to a point where we've gone, oh God. Um, I don't think they have, like in Australia we've opened a sandbox and I think Canada's been quite good as well. I encourage all regulators now, I'm going off to Mauritius next week and they're opening a sandbox. So that's a really good start. You get regulators to open sandboxes and you get them to have a dialogue with the industry. Because for me, we have to do this together. It's not about industry going, you're really bad and we don't want regulation. Because regulation is actually not bad. I mean, and if you say the price of Bitcoin and everything else, it's gone up because regulation is adding credibility. So I think you know, regulators need to work with industry and we need to work with them and we all work with governments and things like sandboxes and regulators talking to each other would be a really good step because that's the number one thing I find is they don't pick up the phone to each other. Regulators didn't make Bitcoin. Technologists made Bitcoin. And people can try to make these regulations, but it's not going to affect the reality of the technology. And this is even a good idea. We don't have a Canadian email bureau or board that oversees email. And yet everyone in this room uses email every day. It's the number one business tool in Canada. It's how we all communicate. Where's the Canadian email agency? So there's another aspect actually that uh, goes hand by hand to these. There are technologies out there like Zcash and Monero that are completely anonymous. If they told you Bitcoin's anonymous, they lie to you. But they are technologies that there's nothing you can do, even if you want to regulate, because you cannot track them down. And more recently, Ethereum introduced the uh, zero knowledge Starks, so they'll be able to implement anonymous contracts and so forth. So how do you re regulate this kind of like beast? Or how do you handle it? Yeah, I mean, it's an issue. I'm not too, in truth, familiar with all the details of that, but I think uh, cases like the Silk Road Trilogy um, involving Mr. Albright and others show that the myth of the dark web and the use of virtual currencies to shed or to shield one from the force of the law through one's anonymity was a farce. Um, and what regulators were doing, and I'm still learning more about this, were issuing search warrants and summonses against parties like the exchanges or <coughs> digital wallets where you could get access to identity. And a perfect example of that is what's happening with Coinbase right now, which was just subject with an order, subjected to an order by the court in California to disclose um, the identities and certain information about the accounts of individuals who had been transacting uh, over $20,000 um, over the period of 2013 to 2015 and were potentially not declaring that as tax or the tax um, consequences. And so uh, regulators, in fact, um, you know, I'm not sure what their opinion would be on the, the various uh, technologies that you just mentioned. It's, in fact, many of them see blockchain technology as a positive. And I used to be in the insider trading unit at the Ontario Securities Commission, and it would take us forever to get access to data, uh, blue sheet data, selector data across various platforms. Now I have to go to Cayman Island, then have to go to BVI, then have to go to Switzerland and compile all this information through MMOUs, with, through our IOSCO agreements, et cetera, et cetera. And here we now have a platform where if I issue summonses against certain parties, 
I can get access to information. So I'm not sure what those particular technologies with, do. With ZCAS and Monero and, and seven okay. stacks, you will never find who was behind any transaction. It's it's a black hole, black hole. And now we're moving. You mean like the government is now, like the government's back? Black hole. And now we're moving. Now we're moving to decentralized exchanges running on those blockchains. That it will also be a black hole, which means you can never track down so who was behind. Should we be, afraid, should we be afraid? Um, no, my question, and obvious question as a technologist, is if you regulate Bitcoin or if you regulate Ethereum as you regulated everything in my life, then I'm going to start running over there, and the only regulation is to call me a criminal. But to call me a criminal, you cannot get me because you cannot find me. Well, we have, I mean, outside of like knowing exact financial transactions, if you're doing illegal activity, like, you know, there are other ways to catch criminals other than knowing the exact transactions that they've made through their course of lives. And, uh, you know, just like, you know, when we're, we're seeing the regulations too, and just, you mentioned Ross Albright and, and Silk Road too. Um, like this was an example of, of an innovator in the day trying something and yes it didn't like you know the, the cause of it wasn't great but you know he's had the book thrown at him pretty darn hard and uh, you know he's he messed up and he saw growth like he built something that just really grew and it's it's a, it's a travesty that is that you know what, what's happened and I think this is one of these precedents and there's been more data as well and his mother, Lynn Albright, is like, I've met her in person. She's a beautiful, wonderful person. And, um, you know, they could, they, could use, they could use some help. Well, I see that, I mean, I speak to regulators a lot, and, you know, it's nothing and I, especially in India, oh goodness. I mean, I, and the thing is, when I came into this space in 2012, there was no regulation. So I started to write the self-regulation, which we did in Australia, and I think a lot of other countries adopted, because most people would do the right thing. Most people want self-regulation. They, they don't want to get in trouble. And if you self-regulate, you can't stop people doing bad things, but it sets a precedent, and most people follow it. And in most exchanges I know, you know, the, the trade around it for the one, we have more KYC AML than most banks do. Good God. So I was at banks, you know, central bank and regulators, if you want to track something, like go back to the person that bought the Bitcoin because you need an account. So let's use that as a good thing. And so it's much more open and transparent for you guys. And if you want to do bad things, don't. People are going to do them anyway. People do really bad things with cash. Good God, I can go across the border from Punjab into Pakistan and buy an AK-47 with half a lot of rupee. But you think I'm going to do that with Bitcoin? No. I think part of the issue on this panel is we're talking about different kinds of regulation that are really different. Like, I don't think anyone would advocate having KYC rules for buying a pizza from Domino's. Like, it might sound safer and maybe I'll have more control over who's buying the pizzas, but it would be a disaster for the Canadian economy if we started trying to adopt these rules for more and more things. So we're talking about having something be regulated. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean regulating the companies that supply the ingredients for the pizzas? Probably not the point of sale of the pizzas. Maybe the money transfers, their taxes, these are all completely different things with completely different implications. So when people talk about regulating Bitcoin or Zcash or something else, what are we regulating? Who are these regulators? A lot of what we've been talking about are securities regulators, but that's just one of thousands and thousands of different government agencies in Canada alone that regulate all kinds of aspects of commerce and of people's lives. So I'm not sure there's really an answer to this question. In fact, I'm sure there isn't. There are thousands of different answers to this question. And I 
think a lot of people, I mean, who in this room wants financial privacy? Right? Exactly. You know, the, the, the fact that Zcash and Monero exist and that privacy measures exist is, is a reflection of the market. And, you know, regulators haven't really had to respond to market forces in any meaningful way in a really long time. And this technology forces us, again, to recognize the reality of this technology. People want financial privacy. We want transparency for institutions and privacy for individuals. This technology allows us to do that. And to the extent that regulators don't want to adopt that role, I, I, I hope that all of us in this room who do want privacy will make them do it. Having said that, there is a smart contract. Smart contract, imagine, is like a legal contract that I don't need a lawyer or a court to impose it, but the blockchain makes sure that it works correctly. So the smart contract violated, and I lose money. How do I get my money back? Do I go to court, or what is the process? So how the legal profession will be influenced by the existence of these new type of contracts called smart contracts enforced by a blockchain? The smart contracts kind of execute, and it should be the, the lawyers who are you know, participating in designing kind of effective smart contracts as they currently design you know, paper contracts. In, in the world of Ethereum, a smart contract is simply a computer program. So for those of you lawyers in the room who are like, oh no, I don't know about smart contracts. It's not a legal contract. It might be, but it might not be. It's simply a, a software program. And so, you know, it really depends on who the parties are, if they're known, um, and, and all of those sorts of issues. Yeah, so let's pause it in our mind, the distinction between smart contract as defined by Ethereum, which I call smart contract code, and then you have a distinction between a legal contract, which either in part or in whole is memorialized in code. And so we're talking about, to your question, the latter. Okay. So now the challenges with smart contracts are multiple uh, in terms of how do you enforce on that. And we're, we're actively looking at this because there's a number of legal questions that are engaged with smart contracts. So first and foremost, the enforceability. Okay, does a law, our jurisdiction or other jurisdictions where smart contracts are being affected, would it recognize digital signatures or does it still require wet ink signatures? Uh, when we talk about a smart contract, we often in Canada and other jurisdictions say an offer, acceptance and consideration in order to make a contract. Critically, a part of that is whether there's a meeting of minds amongst the parties, that they understand what they're accepting, they understand what they're offering. Can one say in good conscience that two parties who do not understand code, where the contract is in part or entirely written in code, can that element of the smart contract, the enforceability aspect of it, be said to have occurred or arisen? So these are all fundamental questions and others. Let's not even get into jurisdictional issues. Let's not even get into what happens on bankruptcy or tax issues, et cetera, et cetera that a party does need to have fleshed out before one really goes down that, that road of going with the smart contracts as I defined it. 
I just want to add one quick thing. Um, for those of you in the audience who are actually uh, building smart contracts and you're entrepreneurs, you have companies in this space, I strongly, strongly recommend that you add an arbitration clause to your terms and conditions so that you can limit jurisdiction and decide uh, where you want your, your disputes to be heard. If you don't do that, then you could end up in court in every single jurisdiction where your clients are, and especially if you don't know where they are, you really open yourself up to a ton of risk. It's really easy and low cost for you to add an arbitration clause that says, no, we're not actually gonna go to the US and deal with 50 depositions. No, we're gonna deal with any disputes online, documents only, and you can actually do this in a legally enforceable way if you educate yourself about it. So you do wanna choose your own jurisdiction. You wanna designate those jurisdictions. I'll just add on that. Um, I don't think there's many coders that are lawyers and lawyers that are coders, so we've got a problem to start there. And I think smart contract is an interesting word. I don't think they're either smart or contract. They're mechanically execution of two parties coming together. So we get coders to be lawyers and lawyers to be coders. They, they need to do a lot of work on that because the, the questions on both sides of it, the, that are just huge. Loretta, thank you for flying all the way from uh, Australia today. She literally got here five minutes ago, so five minutes before. I wouldn't have missed it for the world for you or something. This must be a soak of the weather. Thank you so very much for coming. Thanks, Sunny. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend you think would appreciate the send. Up next, more talks from past conferences. Thanks for listening.